I thought this would be an interesting conversation, actually, because I know that you're both really into the science of things. And me and Eric were talking on Messenger about labels um, and, uh, and and whether we should use them at all, basically, because it's got to this point where it's all semantics, right? And and people are arguing over the definitions of labels. And then I, me and Eric, uh, Eric mentioned, uh, whose hierarchy was it again, Eric? Susan, Susan Friedman. Oh, Susan Hartfield's hierarchy needs, yes. Yeah, and how that maybe reflects his view better than anything else. Um, and I know that you've identified yourself as a Lima trainer. Yes. Yes, so I thought that that would make a really interesting conversation. Uh, well, see, I thought it would be very interesting to learn about how you train lemurs. How, oh, I love lemurs. I've got this. <laughs> there, there's my little poke at you Brits. My, my Am I saying it Somebody's working with a phone. Oh, I'm working with a phone because I've got five wet dogs that have just come in from working. So they're like running around like absolute hooligans. Nothing wrong um, with that. So the, th- the thing is, I guess my biggest problem with labels for trainers is that it, it that is partly partly right down to the fundamentals, that we still refer to ourselves as behaviorists, which means we have to identify everything within behaviorism. And I actually think that the science has brought us on such a far, such a long journey away from behaviorism that most of the most of the labels are still obsessed with this positive reinforcement, negative reinforcement, positive punishment, negative punishment, etc., etc. And actually what we know about dogs is that we've come... We're, 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 we're not over that because it's always going to play a part in what we do but we know so much more than that now so I don't think any trainer will ever need, will ever continue to fit into the boxes that fall under um, under the old behaviourism series because it means we have to see everything through that frame and I don't think we do see everything through that frame anymore does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. Absolutely. Um, no, I'm definitely no. It doesn't. oh, Eric, go on then, Eric. <laughs> it it does in the in, in the modern sense of how I feel that the operant conditioning model has been misunderstood. Yes, agreed. I have always maintained because I've been at this for 16 years. The operant conditioning model is forensic. It's meant to be used after the behavior has changed it is it was never a method it's not prescriptive way of measuring and in fact i've done articles that you can't use positive reinforcement you can't use it something could have been arrived at by positive reinforcement Mm -hmm. but you can't use it and i so i agree with you in the sense that i i think people have misinterpreted those labels and tried to apply them in ways that don't make any sense and if what you mean is we need to get beyond that uh, by saying we need to get back to the real science as opposed to this mythology we've created around it you know i I never call myself a positive reinforcement trainer i'm a reward-based trainer yeah yeah absolutely and I, I, I do think that you're right. I think we, I think that there is a massive misunderstanding. I mean, the thing is that, that, that Skinner himself never put it into a quadrant anyway. It was never a quadrant. And 
if, if, if it was to work in the way that we use it as a project, there'd need to be at least nine different versions of that. So it, it, it just doesn't work. We're fitting, we're bashing a square peg into a round hole. But additionally, when, when they arrived at those conclusions, dogs were still considered a lower organism. It was before we knew that they were, that they were able to, to there was self-awareness or um, even, a, even a full consciousness um, and the ability to feel emotions and all that kind of stuff. And, and, and I think it, it, it's really good when you're training in a vacuum and you're training a dog from A to B. Uh, and, and I think it's, it's a really good way of measuring data to work out if what you're doing is what you want it to be doing. Um, but when it comes to looking at training methods, I just think we understand so much more about how the environment works alongside the genetics, alongside the, the neurochemistry, alongside you know all the other millions of factors that that affect dogs that that continually continually trying to fit every type of training and every cause of behavior under um those labels that were never designed to look at any of that stuff it doesn't make any sense to me well i find that um another big misunderstanding that I, I don't think a lot of the positive training crowd, if I can use a label maybe inappropriately, mm -hmm. um, I don't think they've gotten their head around, is that operant conditioning and classical conditioning happen at the same time. Yeah, of course. And, and they are always in play together. So mm -hmm. you can use your reward-based training, but if you're trying to train a dog who's just eaten, um, you're hitting them... In a, in a wrong emotional place. So you're not being um, effective from the classical conditioning standpoint. Yeah, I mean, that comes right back to Thorndike, doesn't it? Right, it comes right but, but if, you're, if you're one of these purists that says, well, when the dog does the behavior and I'm rewarding them, that's positive reinforcement, so I'm a good guy, right? Well, no, because you're missing this huge chunk of nuance that you should know as a good trainer you should understand establishing operations right you've you've already screwed yeah. yourself that the dog is not hungry yeah you know or you've taken a new behavior to a new environment and they're far too engaged in the smells and the sounds and whatever you've set yourself up for failure and you're not understanding that there's more to this than just when i pull the lever the dog does the thing and that's the thing because because that's what it was designed to measure. It was designed to measure, you know, rats and pigeons in boxes, really. It's if I put my five dogs in white boxes with levers, how often uh, the, the rate of response, the, the time between them pressing those levers would differ greatly. And that's not, that's not just because of uh, their, how, how salient the reinforcement is. And it's not just because of whatever very, like whatever schedule you put them on. You could put them on all the same schedule, and you could somehow, even if you could somehow magic a way of finding the the exact same saliency for the treats across the five dogs, they would all press the lever differently because they're all so different. Well, and I that's, think that's you not, you you that, touched on not, some of argue, it. I would argue that's nothing to do with that's nothing to do with reinforcement and punishment. That that it's too reductionist. Um, it's too reductionist in and of itself. So even the situation that you've just uh, come up with, even if we ignore all the confounding variables of the environment and the dog's emotional state and blah, and we just think about whether or not the dog was satiated at the time of training, it still doesn't fit because 
um, because you, you don't know, sort of food can so often be used um, uh, wrongly and, and cause a lot of conflict behaviour. And even when, in hindsight, you can reflect on it and suggest that it was still reinforcement because the animal's behaviour increased, that doesn't even necessarily mean the animal enjoyed it. Right. But I, I think you touched on another aspect of this earlier when you mentioned genetics. The, yeah. the one black box that we can't get to is, yes, we know that when you reward an animal, there's a dopamine release. But mm-hmm. how much and how well that dopamine is used is going to differ from dog to dog. So, so, yes, you've reinforced the behavior, but how much have you reinforced the behavior? Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, as you were just saying, it's not uncommon for people to create a poison cue out of food. You know, mm-hmm. you uh, stick your hand in your pocket and you say, come, and the dog comes over and you've got no cookie. Mm-hmm. Well, now food has become a poison cue because, well, you've faked them out enough times, so they don't want to work for food because they can't trust that it's going to be there. So that's an uh, environmental factor. Yeah, and in addition to that, you've got all your intrinsic motivation, which, which is, is something that's, that's a much more cognitivist view and looks at what's going on inside this black box that the behaviorists didn't want to touch. And, and, and when you think about the, uh, the intrinsic motivation of a dog, of, of any dog, but of a particular dog, so of, of, of one dog that we're working with at one time, um, we know that intrinsic motivation will usually trump external motivation. And in fact, there's been lots of evidence with animals to suggest that trying to externally motivate a dog whilst they're satiating their intrinsic motivation is in fact punishing. Um, it, do you, sorry, Nick, do you know... Is- do you know Jonathan okay, Haidt? Do, do you know Jonathan Haidt's work? He's a, a social psychologist in the States. Um, no, I don't think so. Uh, he wrote a book called The Happiness Hypothesis, and it has nothing to do with dogs or animal training. It's purely sociology yeah. and psychology. But mm-hmm. in it, he uses an analogy of the, the elephant and the rider. And in his mind, the rider is the intellect, and the elephant is the emotions. And if you're, trying to pers- if you're trying to persuade somebody purely by intellect, but you've turned them off emotionally, the elephant is going where the elephant's going, regardless of yeah. what the rider says, right? And I think the analogy holds with dogs. I think you have yeah. to be aware of what's going on. Now, I will say that I find tremendous value in, in the behavioral models. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think we're beyond that. I think we have not made I agree. we have not made enough use of it properly. Um, so, like you were saying, and what would you say is using it properly? Data collection. Uh, well, I, sort of along the lines of what I was saying before. First of all, you need to flip the operant conditioning model into forensic mode. You use it to analyze how well or how poorly what you tried came out. Yeah. But th- there's other aspects as well. One of the things I've always said about mark and reward training that I love is not that it works. That's a given. We know that. But it provides a window for me. <laughs> little play going on here? Get him. <laughs> Can you see that? Yeah. Just yeah. to explain to the people listening, um, Joe's dogs are having a play fight. <laughs> My Vizsla just like literally died sofa bombing each other. <laughs> um, where was I now? 
Oh my god. The thing oh, that you right. like about yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm so sorry. I'm no, no. so sorry. I That's okay. I've never said this before, but I think I'm going to move in the room with the Mallies because it's karma. <laughs> Who would have thought? You've got Malinois? Never thought I'd say that. I've got that on record. You have Malinois? Yeah, two Mallies. Oh, I'm about to get one, I think. Oh my god, are you sure? I've already got two Gronendales, so. Have you? Yeah, but I think they're a bit of a different kettle of fish. Nah, they're all one. Belgians. Oh, yeah, what a cutie. Yeah, How fun. old? They're, they're, good. they're fun to work. Can like, I jump in a little bit? No, so let me finish good? this point before I lose it. Okay, okay. Go on, <laughs> on there. Go on. Uh, the operant conditioning model and mark and reward training in general, one of the things that I've taken away from it is that it provides a wonderful framework and a window into learning about the dog. So as you say, there's intrinsic motivators. That process of mark and reward training or clicker training puts you in a mode where you're doing observation you're looking for criteria but you see so much more than the behavior that you're that you're looking for you see the dog's emotional state you see the dog's thinking you see the dog frustrated and you learn a lot about a dog's personality through that process and to me that's the real value of positive training that you get so in touch with all of that and you get to use it. You know, not yeah. you've got mouths, right? Every every dog is different. Not every dog wants to work for food all the time. I don't know if your mouths are like my Gronendales, but even if they know a behavior, you can't do the same thing with them over and over and over again. They'll no, walk no, away yeah, from you because they're bored. They want variety, yeah. right? But not every breed's like that. Not every dog is like that. So to me, this whole process of positive training uh, lends itself to learning about what's inside that black box beyond just did the dog do it or not. But could you argue, I mean, I would argue that doing anything in a way that is uh, sufficiently standardized, you know, like in, in a way that is sufficiently scientific um, would, would gather that same data. So I would say that I learn most about dogs and I do quite a lot of assessment of like rescue dogs and stuff. And, and I would say that I learn most from dogs by play. Playing with the dog is how I would learn, like the like in terms of personality and what what floats their boat and how they move and how they touch them, like how how they touch and interact with the world. I would say that if you do anything uh, in a way that is like in a way where you are collecting, you're collecting data, even if you're just collecting that data in your head and you're measuring outcomes and you're looking at variables. And you have your own like little criteria, as in the dog. I expect the dog to do this, and he doesn't, or whatever. I, then, I then agree. I think you could learn just as much. I, I agree. I think every situation teaches us something about our dogs. Play, formal training, even just laying around the house. She's been mauled by her Malinois. Mm. I think I heard the baby crying. So oh, I'm not goodness. sure if that's why she left. What I was going to say, Eric, yes. was it seems to Sorry. me from what it seems to me from what Joe is saying that perhaps the reason that these labels are so kind of inept is that they were created by people that maybe didn't have the understanding beyond beyond uh, behaviorism, and that would really make sense for my experience in education because when Joe is talking about things like cognitivism and all this kind of stuff. That's not something I've heard of, and I've been to university for canine behavior and training, and what I was taught was 
you know, positive reinforcement, the quadrants, counter conditioning, classical conditioning, and and in my day to day life, maybe differential reinforcement is you know ninety percent of it. Um. Yeah. I, I think. I think one of the big problems is how the science has been integrated into dog training. If you look at somebody like Skinner, Skinner wasn't trying to figure out how to train dogs. Skinner was uh, a psychologist that was trying to understand the nature of behavior. So he was attacking a very small part of the problem. And while the operant conditioning model has been very useful in serving a function in all kinds of animal training, I don't think Skinner ever claimed that it was uh, the whole answer to behavior and training. It was an aspect of it, but somehow when dog training adopted it, uh, it became sort of a catchphrase or a buzzword, and everybody sort of glommed onto it and tried to use it for everything. <laughs> I guess it's like the old saying, if all you have is a hammer, the entire world is a nail. Mm. So do you feel like maybe... This this makes this certainly makes me feel like there is so much more to learn, and maybe I'm only seeing a tiny part of it. And I'm sure there's going to be loads of people listening um, that are professional dog trainers, and they only know about this about you know the whole Skinner and Pavlov stuff as well. And I know there are some more like Thorn Dyke and and stuff like that, but but the majority of our work is always viewed within that kind of Skinner and Pavlov sense of things. Well, you know, there's uh, you and I have talked about it in chat windows before, but you know, part of my detachment from writing and and being involved with the training community was my encounter with Ray Coppinger's last book. Um and that really kind of reset some things in my head and it's mostly because Coppinger was a behavioral ecologist. So he was looking at behavior from the standpoint of how does the dog fit into its ecological niche? And the fact is, and it's beyond dispute, 70% of the world's dogs do not live in people's homes. They are free-ranging, dump-scavenging dogs. That's And they're all over the world, and they all look the same, and Coppinger has studied them. Uh, in several parts of the world, in several populations, and they all behave the same. They all have the same uh, biological motivations for things. And I think that aspect, which I think Joe was trying to get to, um, the intrinsic motivation that she was talking about, that's that basic instinct that comes pre-wired in the dog. And that's something I don't hear a lot of people talking about. Um and I think that's another aspect that needs to be folded into this. Yes, there is operant conditioning that can be applied to dogs and they will respond to operant conditioning. Yes, you can see classical conditioning and its effect on dogs. But what are you dealing with when it comes to intrinsic motivation? Um, and as a question to you, have you ever read um, The Misbehavior of Organisms by Keller Breland? No, definitely not little four-page article you can you can pull it up on on a website i mean just mm -hmm. do a search for the misbehavior of organisms uh -huh. and basically that was talking about the issue of using operant conditioning against an animal's own intrinsic motivations how if 
he, he talked about a raccoon and that that they were training for something and um, raccoons need to wash their food before they eat it so you could train a raccoon not to do that but if you ever stop reinforcing the behavior the raccoon is going to slowly drift back to washing their food yeah i've i've heard this story before okay so it's it and the lesson there is you have to always keep in mind that there is an internal set of motivators that are working in the animal and if you don't address them you're going to constantly be confounded with why is this not working it's because you're not mm-hmm. taking into account a certain aspect of the dog's personality. Mm. It's interesting. The closest thing to that I've heard people talk about in dog training is when people are talking about things like predatory drift. I don't know if that's based on the same ideas. Well, yes and no. Um, one of the issues that, again, came out of the Coppinger book for me is that as much as we talk about the fact that dogs are predators, they really aren't. Our dogs that we're living with today in our homes are not evolved from wolves. They're evolved from those dump scavengers that Coppinger writes about in his last book. You know, some 40,000 years ago, dogs ceased to become wolves and became this other thing, and from that other thing came our dogs. Mm. So I think... Yes, there are probably some vestiges of predatory wiring and biology in a dog. But behaviorally speaking, and Coppinger makes this case pretty convincingly in that book, um, they behave as scavengers. You know, for example, uh, somebody was talking on one of the Facebook groups about aggression and, and how do you deal with aggression. If you read Coppinger's book and you understand what he's saying properly... Dogs do not come wired for aggression. It makes no sense in their ecology. These are scavengers who have a certain amount of energy each day that they need to spend on finding food, mating, keeping themselves safe. Fighting with each other is just a waste of energy. Unless you've got a scarcity of resources. So for for our dogs, where we have this... You know, our dogs are fed everything they need. They get enough water. They get enough exercise. Unless you go out of your way to abuse a dog, there's no reason for them to show aggression from a Mm. biological standpoint. But what about dogs that have been, what about kind of modern breeding? You know, for example, uh, you know, talking about aggression, maybe pit bulls that have been bred for generations to fight other dogs. Or, Or to give another example, greyhounds that have been bred to hunt things well and malinois have their own problems right some of them are bred for hyper aggression so yeah i mean you can select for that but again i'm i'm talking in coppinger's sense right what we would call his feral dogs are really mutts they're they're the proto dog they're Mm. all breeds at once so so if we if we apply that to all dogs but then on top of that we also have to consider the breed specific uh right what, what did you call it like intrinsic motivators exactly uh, and and that to me that's the right way to go about it i have a dog this is what comes with the basic dog now it's like saying i have a car they all have four wheels they all have a steering wheel they all have a gas tank 
but there's a difference between a Volkswagen and a Ferrari. Mm. Right. Some there's a there's a little difference in the steering, a little difference in the acceleration. You know, a little difference. <laughs> yeah, a little bit, a little bit, uh, a little bit. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I have I have herding dogs, totally different <laughs> than a poodle. Yeah, exactly. Um, and yet not right. totally different. Well, yeah, like you said, you know, at the at the end of it, they are both dogs. Right. You know, mm. I have Belgians somebody else may have collies both herding dogs both have different needs in terms of exercise and mental stimulation but both equally have a need for social interaction and they both will seek to avoid conflict so they have things in common they have things that are different and i like the way you put that you need to consider uh, breed um, differences over the top of the basics that come with a dog. And I think you could even go another step further and say there's going to be individual differences within that breed that you have to consider. So, I mean, I mean, our Rizzo is a Belgian through and through, but he's the biggest couch potato we've ever had. Mm-hmm. When, it, when it's time to work, he's all over it. But our, our other dogs take much longer to settle than he does. Mm-hmm. He comes home and he just crashes. So that, yeah, that's him as an individual. But he still shows breed traits, and he still has all of that intrinsic wiring that comes with a basic dog. Yeah, very interesting. I think we've gone very off topic, but super interesting and also kind of motivating because I think so many of us are just looking at it through this kind of behavior, behaviorist lens. And, you know, uh, from talking to you and Joe, it seems like it's, you know, it goes much further than that. Well, I'm sorry that we didn't get to chat more with Joe. I hope she comes back. Um, Well, it sounds like she's going to come back if you're still around. Oh, sure. I've got plenty of time. Um, Awesome. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm a little leery of sort of this postmodernist take on dog training um, where, you know, we're we're past the need for operant and classical conditioning. And uh, no, (laughs) we're, we're not past it. But there's other things we need to consider, like genetics, like the intrinsic motivators of dogs, like the differences between individuals. Um, I don't think dog training is as simple as we wanted to make it. You know, we sort of found this new key with positive reinforcement training. And, you know, that was our hammer. And we went out in search of nails. Uh, And I think uh, I hope what Joe is trying to say is that it's time to admit that there's more to the equation than just operant and classical conditioning. There's, mm. there's a bigger palette for us to paint with. So would you say that operant and classical conditioning is the majority of the puzzle, but we need to go out and, and learn about these other aspects? Or would you say that actually it's only a tiny piece? I don't know that I see it that way. I mean, to me, operant, and classical conditioning are conceptual frameworks that help me evaluate. In the end, the question is, you know, do I have a good working relationship and am I getting the behavior I want out of my dog? Um, the bottom line is I say, sit, do you sit? And, you know, is it is it working the way I want it to work? If not, how do I communicate with you what I am looking for and how do I motivate you to do it? That, that's training, right? 
Mm. Operant conditioning is a way for me to look at what I did and what made the the inner the interchange successful. So mm. was it that I was leaning over my dog and looking menacing and that's why he's sitting okay then that was positive punishment was it because they gave him a cookie every time he sat okay well that was positive reinforcement mm. so yeah because the operating conditioning we... model for me is a way to look at how things happened past tense right so it it just provides a framework to work within because you know mm. jo, in, in a sense joe's right Positive reinforcement. Is there a difference between giving a dog one cookie for a behavior and six? How well, reinforcing is reinforcing? Mm. Why is it that it only takes three repetitions with this dog to get the behavior and it takes 27 for that one? Mm. Right. So um, it, it's a framework that helps us to a degree in understanding but it's not going to tell us anything about why this dog responds more to liver treats than that dog does yeah it's very it is interesting and sometimes you know it seems like you maybe you're a little bit more reserved on what you called the post kind of modernism take because you know sometimes when from my perspective sometimes when you hear people talking about stuff like that it kind of makes you think jesus christ you know maybe maybe i'm well behind the times on this maybe no, i'm, I'm no. missing a lot here no my my bigger fear is that uh, I, I think human beings in general have a real um we have a real instinct for magic and mysticism we we just like things to be just beyond our grasp there so my concern with you know going too far down this postmodern route is that we want to create magic again. We want it to be beyond our understanding. Uh, and I think that's counterproductive. You know, if, if we start saying, well, we're beyond operant conditioning, we're beyond classical conditioning, that sort of suggests that, you know, it, it, the answers are not there. But there are answers there. And there have been answers there for decades. We know that there is value in using those tools. Yes, there may be new information we're getting about intrinsic motivation and about neurochemistry and about emotional responses, but that should be additional knowledge. It shouldn't be muddying the waters. We don't need to throw away what we have from the past in order to incorporate the new things we're learning. Um, I, I think you and I talked about Claudia Fugaza at one point, didn't we? And her do-as-I-do training. Uh, possibly um i'm not i don't remember that went absolutely nowhere at least in my observation i don't uh, i don't know that anybody's using it on a regular basis um, mm. and to me the reason for that is yeah it's interesting that dogs can be taught to model but that's an interesting factoid <laughs> it's not a method of training so while her work may have led us to some useful things that we may be able to take from that kind of training, you're never going to teach agility and you're never going to teach your dog how to have manners around the house that way. There are just better ways to train. Mm. Uh, so mm. I, I think it's that sort of thing that as we gain new information, it all has to be integrated. And, and I think we are running into some very 
difficult waters if we think we can throw out what we've learned before. Uh, uh, operant conditioning and classical conditioning have formed such a solid basis for us to analyze what is happening in our training that regardless of what we're learning from Coppinger and genetics and behavioral ecology, regardless of what we learn there, we can still use those models as analysis tools after the fact. And I think there's still value there. Excellent. That kind of uh, fills me with a little bit more hope, Eric. <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, worried there I was going to be made redundant for a second. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> But, you know, it's sort of right, like cool. I was saying earlier that, you know, I, I always want to hire people who say, I don't know, but I'll find out. Um, I, I think we all need to stay in that mode. We all need to hear things and say, huh, that's interesting. I wonder how that works and go and find out and then integrate that into what you already know. Yeah, absolutely. And that seems like kind of um, the take home message here, right? That. Um, you know, we do know a lot when it comes to this kind of operant conditioning and, and cl classical conditioning, but there is more and more coming out and we can't become complacent. Well, you know, another thing that uh, I think um, needs to be considered, and, and I, I assume you do it, I assume any good trainer does it, I don't just look at the operant conditioning model when I'm teaching a behavior. When I go to, to a client and I'm talking with them in their kitchen i'm also watching their dog and if the dog is constantly jumping up on the counter and i watch the owner and the owner pushes the dog off twice and at the third on the third time it says sit and gives the dog a cookie well mm -hmm. now i know that the dog is engineering a situation where it jumps on the counter to get the owner to ask it to sit to give it a cookie yeah, I, I remember. So, so that's um, operant that's, conditioning so that at its best. Right? Well, but it, it's it's the dog engaging operant conditioning. The dog knows the drill. The dog has figured out if I jump up twice, the third time she's going to get say sit, and I'm going to get a cookie. So the operant behavior here is not the sit; it's the jumping up. Yeah, I remember. And I've, um, and I've worked out the reinforcer for you. It's because you mm -hmm. say sit and then pay him. So stop doing mm -hmm. that. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think that I remember hearing an interesting thing, and I'm going to butcher it now, but I remember it was Ian Dunbar that was talking about it, and he was talking about how he feels like dog trainers tend to make a really big deal out of behavior chaining, and in actuality, it doesn't happen nearly as frequently as people make it out to. Would you agree with that? Say it again. Um, so he was saying that I can't remember the context. I think it was teaching a, a dog to sit when it was jumping up um, instead of jump up, sorry. Um, and someone asked him the question that wouldn't, couldn't some dogs um, behavior chain this, right? So they could learn to jump up and then wait for the sit. Um, and he was saying that he doesn't think that it happens nearly as often as people like to believe that it does. Well, yeah, I mean, you'd have to be awfully consistent. And you'd have to do it over a prolonged period of time. Oh, Joe, stop whining. Oh, sorry. I'm going to turn it off. I, I thought, I didn't realise my speaker was on. I thought my speaker was off, and I was like, snap, Heather. And I was like, I'll get Nando to go and look after the baby so that I can sort out so I can actually talk to them and not stop disrupting all, all their stuff. And there I go, disrupting all of their stuff. No again. worries. Me and Eric have been, like, on and off now for probably about two hours. So 
Oh, really? Okay. We're going to end up up cutting loads of it anyway, so (laughs) don't worry about it. Yeah, and I'm going to let Nick do that. (laughs) Just cut cut me straight out. That's fine. I'm quite (laughs) I don't want to do the editing on this one. I know. This is going to be a hell of a chore. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, just to, I want to integrate Joe into what we were just talking about because I think it's, it's a good topic and it's what I was concerned about with what you were saying earlier, Joe, about um, being sort of beyond operant and classical conditioning. I don't, I don't, I don't think beyond is the right, is quite the right right phraseology. I think, um, I think it's always going to be a huge established part of what we do. But I think that, I think we're beyond using it exclusively and thinking exclusively through the frame of behaviorism. Agreed. Agreed. And that's what Nick and I were talking about. Um, I was telling him about, um, I don't know if you've read Ray Coppinger's last book, What is a Dog? Um, Uh That that reset a a bunch of things for me um, in in some good and not so good ways. because of his behavioral ecology approach and what we got to talking Mm -hmm. about, it kind of got to what you were saying about intrinsic motivators. Dogs do come pre-wired with with behavior. And Nick brought up the fact um, that breeds have been selectively bred to have another overlay of pre-wiring. And then you're going to get individuals within that breed that are going to vary from the mean. So, you know, you've got all these layers of stuff that have nothing to do with operant and classical conditioning, but are affected Uh, by it. Right. Yes. So, Uh, and also, you know, there's, um, there's a huge fashion at the moment to, uh, suggest that there is no such thing as breeds and that there's that there's more variation within a breed than, than aside than the, the, between breeds and stuff. But it's, um, for me, I, I, I love all that genetics plus environment equals behavior stuff. Yep. And that that is such a it's such a fundamental part of dogs and not so much of rats and of pigeons. You know, when, when it when it comes to looking at the, the animals that were originally studied for for um, for initially coming up with the, the framework of which we use for operant conditioning. And so I can understand how back then it seemed like uh, it could be the, the answer to everything. And I think with dogs, because there is so much in genetic psychology, which is looking at the behavior, uh, looking at the behavior from a, from a genetic plus environment type, type world, as well as through cognitivism, when we look at the memories and the way the memories are stored and the processing that goes on uh, in, in order to, to establish where a dog is and their mindset and their state. Uh, I just think that when we look at it more holistically, we come up with much better answers. I, I would agree. I, th- I think there's a lot more that goes into um, behavior. Uh, one, of, one of the bits uh, I read years ago in John Bradshaw's book, um, mm-hmm. I don't know what it's called in Britain. It's Dog in Sense. Over, dogs, I think. Yeah, it's called Dog Sense here in Canada. Yeah. Um, he talks about resource holding potential as opposed yeah, to yeah, I love the that. dominance mm. hierarchy. And part of that speaks to the variation from day to day of a mm-hmm. given dog's focus on a particular resource so that you can't say a dog is an alpha because if a dog is an alpha, what you're saying is that the dog needs to maintain absolute status all the time. All and, the time. And we just don't see it. You know, and it's, have you, it's have you all read those relative. Studies? Have you read the studies of the, 
um, there was a great one. There's been a few, but there was a, a fantastic one. I, I will find the reference for it, um, where they put all those dogs, I think they put 32 dogs in a compound um, and studied them for 22 days uh, and looked at the posture variation to try and establish whether or not there was some consistent uh, approaches of of dogs between one another um, and whether or not there was a more consistent whether or not there were consistent uh, behavior patterns that matched to their resource holding potential and they found that invariably there definitely was um, and, and that doesn't surprise me I think I think I, I loved the resource holding potential um, it's a great concept, model and I think it's, it's a great model and, it, and I can see it every day as I'm sure you do between your dogs some, Absolutely. Some days, what made a what dog made me can't be bothered. Most about the um, about the study was the fact that the dog that was that, that was classed as having the most re- most consistent and most resource holding potential within that group of dogs um, in the vast majority of of of, uh, of situations was the Malinois bitch, and and it absolutely is an our house and. And I think that because of the way that breeds are bred within different intrinsic motivators, that there's bound to be. Um, there's bound to be trends in types of dogs with so far as how they behave with other dogs as well. Well, and, and it's not a static thing, right? I mean, no. we, we have a, a Gronendale bitch who's 14 uh-huh. now, and our, our younger boy is eight. For, mm-hmm. for all of his life, the bitch was in charge. And you do not go outdoors before me. You do not get mm-hmm. in front of me when walking, or you're going to get a face full of my teeth. That's just the way she was, right? Yeah. Now, as she's gotten older, when she was 12, she started having vestibulars every six months mm-hmm. or so, and she's had two in the last three months. And mm-hmm. so she's not, she doesn't have the stability to go at him the way she used to. She's a little wobbly on her pins. She's 14. Mm. Uh, and so she's letting him go outdoors now. And, uh, yeah. before her she's letting him rush past her in hallways she's okay with him getting a cookie first where before yeah, she used to snark right and and, and 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 even on a on a less uh like on a less uh, longitudinal uh, sense in, in our house we've got five dogs who will vary massively in terms of personality but it depends on the value of the resource as well because our, our oldest dog uh, Zeus who's a 13 year old Doberman and he he's still kind of he still can hold his own very much and he's still kind of if Zeus says no everyone goes oh, okay um, but <laughs> Zeus rarely says no now and he only says no for the things that really matter and that can change from day to day right Right. To change the topic slightly, because we're talking about Ray Coppinger, I remember when he was giving a talk at Sparks, mm-hmm. and I managed to ask a question via Twitter about um, behavior chains, and he was talking about how behavior chains are the most reinforcing thing to the dog to, to go through the behavior chain. And I thought that posed a really interesting question with dogs, and I know that you're really into this, Joe, with dogs that have that kind of predatory sequence how do you go about behavior modification if the sequence is so reinforcing that it's more reinforcing than anything that you could possibly provide? Well, well, well I think that it's um, it's a very interesting question. I think that, that there are also two different ways to look at it because when a dog is hungry and they're actually hunting, their sequence is different to what the artificially selected sequence, uh, which can come out in a variety of different ways as kind of selective drive behavior, especially when the dog's aroused. And the, the, the 
value and the the uh, I would guess that the dopamine and the, the basal hormone level change will be different when they're exhibiting those two things so my example of that would be when my visla is stalking a pigeon and she hasn't eaten for four days and she's like actually looking to go and get that and kill it and eat it is very different to when she's playing stalking the other dogs in the garden so I think we can get very tied to the chain of behavior and think that every time we see it, it is predation. And I think that like true predation is is something other than that select that artificially selected drive behavior that we see commonly in dogs that have been bred to work. Uh, so um, the motivation for the behavior <laughs> think, is more important maybe than the behavior itself. I, I think Joe well, is well, gone for part the, of this, the, but we did talk about the fact that dogs are not predators, they're scavengers. Yeah, but the, but they are still hardwired to hunt, um, and and to a degree. Yeah, because the thing is, is that we have selectively driven, we have selectively bred a lot of the, the the one of the main reasons that dogs have become domesticated originally is because they were useful, right? Exactly. So they were useful to us. Yep. So so we bred them to do stuff because it was useful. It was useful. Um, I studied the dogs in in India uh, in the villages out there, and it's useful to have a dog that you can have outside of your shop that wards all the other dogs off the rubbish. Yep. And so you feed that dog intermittently because it keeps the other dogs away. They, they they've become domesticated uh, fundamentally because they were useful and a lot of their uses were through hunting um, and certainly through predatory based natural behavior which we have then artificially selected for um, in, in a really uh, a really intense way <laughs> right and to get back so to, in, to get back to your so question Nick I think you can't consider these things in a vacuum because no. You know, yes, there is base wiring that the dog is going to respond to, but there's also environmental conditioning, there's history of reinforcement, there's, you know, all kinds of stuff. So if that Vishla is out stalking a pigeon and Joe happens to come outside at the moment he's stalking and says, come, what's that dog going to do? And I would say, I don't know, because we don't know the internal state of the dog at that point. Yeah. But, you know, there's a fair chance that the dog would respond because, you know, history of reinforcement says if I come, there's probably a cookie and I'm hungry or the pigeon is within reach and I could just kill it now. You know, both things and, are and at play. I think play. it's so much less conscious than that. I, I, I really do. When it comes to when it comes to true predation, when we look at what's going on um, and how, how how the neuro pathways do um, bypass certain areas of the brain, I think that that on a on a. Um, on, a, on a conscious level, the dog's attention um, it, it is so uh, is so impulsive, uh, and um, the, the the parts of that behaviour chain are so intrinsically reinforcing that I think very often um, the the rest of what's going on, whether or not it's a barbed wire fence to get through, or a um, you know, or, or whether or not it's it's in 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 averted commas ignoring the owner. I think it's more to do with the 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 notion and the the way that the brain works with attention giving uh, and particularly in environments where sign stimulus has triggered the the dog to behave in a in a particularly predatory way do you see what i'm saying I so i think that it's so I, so i think that's that 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 depend it, it's so dependent on the dog and the environment as brad said as eric said sorry right. um, um i i will ask so, have um, have either of you seen a dog go into pure limbic reactive state 
Uh, can you describe what you mean a little bit more? Well, we've got a our our younger Belgian has. Mm-hmm. We like to laugh and say he has loose wires in his head. Um, mm-hmm. He has a reactivity issue when he gets above a certain threshold of excitement or anxiety. Okay. And and he literally, I would call it blacks out. He doesn't yep. pass out, but he will bite the nearest human. That's that's his thing. <laughs> when uh-huh. he when he can't handle it, he just comes up at you and it's bang bang, and he stops and seems to come back to himself. Like, oh gosh, I'm really sorry. <laughs> I've seen that, Eric, and I've never heard anyone describe that. So that's interesting. No, me yeah. <laughs> so I mean, that's but I have. Uh, that's uh, uh, we've dealt with him sorry. by getting him on Prozac, and it's made a world of difference. Sure. Um, we we tried. Uh, counter conditioning and desensitization for about a year and a half prior mm-hmm. to the Prozac n- didn't really stick. He would still go over threshold and do that thing. So we did the smart thing and muzzle trained him. Mm. That took some of the sting sure. out of it for us. Um, but once we got him on the Prozac, everything made sense to him. And all of that same training, we didn't change any of our routine, but it all just started to work. And it literally mm-hmm. fixed him within six months. He's fine now. We don't even have to put a muzzle on him. And I had a similar experience with a, a young staffy that um, when she became in situations that were extremely arousing and exciting, that's when she would always um, go in, yeah, go in and, and normally cause a dogfight. So, so I have a theory. Can I? Can I? Can yeah. I tell you my, tell us. My, it's, <laughs> and it's it's just a, it's a theory, but I've had it for a long time, and I've spoken to a lot of people about it, and and I really, I, I've I um. I do expert witness work, so I work with quite a lot of dogs that get in trouble with the law of quite bad things, so, um, you know, causing injuries to people, uh, sometimes very, very severe injuries, um, as well as a lot of rescue dogs that are relinquished for particular behaviours. And I, I think that when a dog goes, um, I mean, we need to, we probably need to be a little bit more explicit about what we're talking about when we say over threshold, but let's let's bear with that at the moment and say over threshold. When a dog goes over their threshold, um, chemically speaking, then I think that the most most commonly dogs will perform uh, the the behaviour that is um, most uh, intrinsically motivated, which is the behaviour that they have been artificially uh, selected to do the most, which means your bully breeds that have been bred to bait bears and bulls will grab and, and bite and your 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 mallies will uh, and your your belgians will tend to go in straight for the bite rather than the grab and hold and bite and your your terriers tend to shake or totally or agree and your, totally you know agree. It, it, the, the, the 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 you know at, when we come home and we've been away and our dogs get really really excited my pit bull will always go and find something to grab that he wants to grab hold of and pull. Mm. My visitor will always pick something up and run around with it in her mouth. My Doberman will stand and he will bark. And the Mallies will find something to bite. Yep. Mm. And, and, and it, it's, it's a, not just a, that they bite, it's how they bite. Because if you look at yes, a predatory absolutely. sequence, for a predatory sequence, the dog is going to bite, grab, hold, shake, kill. Mm-hmm. Yeah. W- when, when Rizzo would lose his stuff... There was none mm-hmm. of that. He was in slash mode. He was just bang, 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 but, but I'm that, done. But that's what I mean by artific- artificially selected behavior. Right. Because that's the behavior that they've been artificially selected for. And it's, it's a variation on the predation sequence, but it's not the same, which is why the dogs, why, why we've got to be clear 
clear about what we're talking about when we're talking about um, uh, predatory behaviour, because I think that the that we talk about predatory behaviour often when what we're actually referring to is of artificially selected drive behaviour, because I think they're two different things. So, so my pit bull, um, you know, he comes from a background where he was probably originally bred to uh, to bite and kill other dogs, and or, or certainly have a good old go at them. Um, and originally, those dog breeds were bred to run in and grab the face of a bull, and they still breed them in some countries for that to do that, where it's not illegal now. Right. Um, and so that's not predatory that that it is it's a it's a variation on that predatory it's a modification actually as as ray would say this bring yeah this brings back a talk that coppinger did at sparks in 2013 where he talked about um the difference between wolf cubs and dog pups and the early development cycle between birth and six weeks and how they Mm -hmm. Um, engage in play and exploring the environment and how they develop those predatory skills and how all of the wolf cubs all developed certain skills at certain ages and it followed a particular sequence that they acquired the different skills. But with different dog breeds, different dog breeds would acquire different skills at different times and some breeds would miss out skills entirely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was right from Scott and Filler. So when you say, um, you know, the predatory sequence, you can't use that when referring to dogs because not all dogs have the same sequence or they they wouldn't function properly. I I guess, um, I guess Coppinger, originally Coppinger used to talk about it as a complete sequence. And I think that, that we can still look at that sequence. We just have to no longer see see it that every dog should perform every part of that sequence and therefore it is complete i think that every sequence is slightly different well beyond that i would say it's it's worthwhile at least from a dog owner perspective to understand where your dog is in that variation cycle like belgians do not herd the same way that border collies herd for a reason it's because they're part guarding dog right (laughs) So yeah. they're not supposed to use I. They're going to run the perimeter. That's what they do. Mm-hmm. So, yes, under, understand the sequence, but understand your dog's particular variation and use it to your advantage. Yeah, and, and, I, and, and one of my, my biggest tips for people when they're thinking about getting a new dog is always have a look at the history. What were those dogs originally bred to do? Mm-hmm. Because when you're in trouble, that is the behavior that's likely to come out. And, of yeah, course, if they say I'm thinking about a Belgian, you immediately say no. Just don't. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I don't know how. With your theory, with your theory, Joe, yes, how come there isn't? Well, how come there isn't consistency then? Because in those situations that me and or those dogs that me and Eric described definitely revert back to those behaviours. But there are plenty of dogs out there that go over threshold and don't seem to, you know, instantly bite the nearest thing to them. But I think that's genetics, really. I think that exactly. it's, it's really easy for us to laugh about Malleys and laugh about but, but about Belgians. But but still, they're relatively rare. The the, the breed pool is quite uh, is still quite small compared to your Labradors or your Bull Terriers, for example. And so they're they're, they're a case in point, and they're a nice example. There's more of them that subscribe to those. Um, oh, there's, there's more of them that subscribe to those notions than than perhaps if we look at Labradors, for example, because. Um, because there's less of the dogs in the gene pool and there's a, a higher proportion of the dogs in the gene pool that are still bred for working capacity. Mm. Um, so I think, 
you, you've got to look at what they're originally bred for and that the chances, I suppose, of those dogs continuing to do it is is probably proportional to the amount of dogs there are in the breed pool and also how much how many of them are still being bred for that purpose or how um recently that purpose has been has no longer being bred for if you see what i mean yeah well and to maybe put a fine point on it um i was once told by a a malinois trainer who did a lot of ring sport uh, he suggested that I take my Gronendale into it, and I wasn't really keen on it. And uh, I said, because I don't want to teach my dog to bite. And he said, you don't have that quite right. You teach, <laughs> yeah. you teach your dog to let go. Not to bite. The biting, yeah, the biting is the yeah. reinforcer for them because there's an endorphin release in that particular breed. So that explains sure. why Rizzo would bite. Okay, so what? The dopamine is a mitigating factor. When he bites, he literally feels Massively. better right sure so i've so i've got a um so i've got a we 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 train mondio with our dogs so we okay. ring sport and with our melodies and um and i've got a, a an interesting ethical dilemma to pose which is there's lots of so to backtrack a little bit i posted a video of a dutch guy who had just got he just scored a hundred points in his ships and obedience test i don't know if you saw it nick that yeah i think beautiful. i saw it beautiful test lovely dog fantastic work like just super super training really a really skilled trainer um and the dogs have a whale of a time the dogs clearly got a really a really nice positive conditioned emotional response to training in this environment now loads of people jumped on that video and said but that that guy uses shock blah 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 Mm. blah blah. um and i think i get quite frustrated sometimes because a lot of um a lot of people will use um, videos of dogs that have been uh, really poorly trained with shock collars that are clearly um, dogs that are suffering and uh, and challenged by the by the situation and not happy at all um, as examples. And there's there's a suggestion um, uh, about this, but being that that we train our dogs for Mondial. We see uh, quite a lot of dogs that have been trained with these barbaric tools. Now, because now my interpretation of what is happening is that because these dogs are allowed to bite, because that is their, their, their main intrinsic motivator, and not only that, but it's also a conditioned reinforcer, and having a, they, they get to do that amazing thing. The overall association that is built in that ring is a positive one. So irrespective of the... The trainer having used um, shock and probably prong on that dog because that dog gets to bite in that ring when it comes to the scales when it comes to behavior economics the juice is worth the squeeze and he has he comes out feeling good about it and so where do we where, where do we want to be you know where, what, what what's important to us is it important to us that the dog has a positive conditioned emotional response to training or that they enjoy every aspect of their training can can i just ask a question first certainly why is a shock collar a barbaric tool well it depends on how you use it isn't it it's considered a barbaric tool i think Uh, i would consider it a crude tool Mm -hmm. but you know someone can create great works of art with a sledgehammer but you have to Absolutely. be really friggin' skilled to do that. <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, agreed. We went to um, we went to see Michael Ellis last year, and and his dogs are very happy, and yep. 
And, Brilliant. You know, he's and he an knows his stuff too. Effective trainer, and he, he absolutely knows his shit. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So I think that sometimes that's the problem when, and it becomes a little bit um, disingenuous and propaganda y when we kind of lump all electric shock trainers together as if they're all absolutely shit at what they do and it, it just it comes across as really disingenuous with people that actually you know you see someone like michael ellis and you just know that that's not right but i still stand by what joe's saying i still don't think that electric shock collars should be used even if there are people that use them and get incredible results with them okay you've You've both inadvertently stumbled on my current malfunction. Awesome. Joe, you've read What is a Dog? Yeah. So you know what I'm about to say is true. Okay. Dogs are biologically wired to put up with the worst behavior we can throw at them so long as, as you put it, the juice is worth the squeeze. Yeah. Knowing that... How do you create some sort of objective standard for how a dog should be trained when the dogs themselves really don't give a shit beyond a certain point? You don't, I think, is the answer, Eric. I think the answer is you don't. Instead, and that's, that's where you, I've landed. Um, instead, you uh, try and provide uh, the trainers training them with sufficient tools and understanding um, and a sense of compassion and kindness. I, I, I don't know if you've read any of my stuff. Um, no, I haven't. I'm sorry. I that's I okay. I, I, do, I, I haven't written in about a year and a half now. And the reason is because of this particular point. Um, I, I think it's, it's a very personal question, what we expect from our dogs. I think it's mm -hmm. a very individual thing, what the dogs expect from us. Mm -hmm. Um and I, I just got to a point where, you know, talking about positive training was getting me um, equal amounts of criticism from the traditional and balanced folks and from the ethical purists who seem to have some idea that there is a, a morally proper way to train a dog. Um, and that just was an uncomfortable place for me. I just and, I, and and unfortunately that that's really really upsetting um, that someone who's clearly very knowledgeable and has a lot of good stuff to share would stop as well, a result of that. Um, that you can that, only the you, stupidity of the, and, and me and Nando get it every day. But I think what I always pull upon is the fact that I think there is there's less difference between a positive trainer if you like and a balanced trainer than there is between two positive trainers if you pick the right trainers i would agree with that and therefore there is there's there's it's it's a waste of time thinking of it in black and white and i do think that that only seeing it through a behaviorist frame is partly responsible for that because we're squishing it in when there's so many other variables going on like we've talked about and, and that's, and actually, that's kind of where nick and i started standpoint that, that, we've that. just got a bunch of trainers and they all use different methods and some of them are really shit and some of them are really good well and if, this we, is... if we stopped using labels and you know Nick and I sort of talked about this in the beginning and what, what I said in response to the initial question of how I feel about labels um, I, I prefer to use them as a jumping off point if somebody says mm -hmm. are, you, are you a positive trainer I will say well 
Um, I don't know what you mean by positive training, but I train using rewards. I prefer to reward the behaviors that I want and deal with the behaviors I don't want in as positive a way as possible and teaching alternatives and yeah, but, but that's a long answer. That's Absolutely. not. I'm and force ca- free, ca- right? But but ca- coming 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 back to what I was saying about those dogs who who were really enjoying it in the ring, despite the fact that 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 methods that some deem unsuitable were being used. When when if I'm asked the question, am I a positive trainer? I will always answer in the Pavlovian sense, yes. I want my dogs to come away having a positive association with the training. Does that mean, Joe, that you're okay? with the use of electric collars as long as the dog overall in that Pavlovian sense Uh, and the reason I'm not um, or or the the primary reason I'm not is because there is a a technological issue with the tools they are not good enough they're not reliable every study that's been done on the tools themselves certainly in this country there was a study done uh, I think in 2014 um, maybe earlier uh, by Defro and they took every single model that's out there and had a look at them and the the malfunction is insane let me tease that out a little bit though Joe they they are incredibly incredibly unreliable tools even if you test them with the remote and the collar right in front of you let alone if you test them on a moving subject uh, with the dogs so I don't think that they are reliable enough um, to 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 be put in in the hands of of anyone other than someone who is um, do you not think that they're kind of inherently flawed, though, in the, the, just the whole concept of, of applying an electric shock to a dog? Well, it depends on what, to what motivate kind of behavior. you're talking about. So, well, is it, are we talking about using it as a positive punishment or as a, ne- or as a negative reinforcer? See, uh, personally, I'm not, really, I'm not really... Well, I guess this comes down to what Eric's saying, you know, where you draw your morals, but I'm not really com- comfortable in using an electric shock in any sense to motivate behavior in a dog. Well, that was my question to Joe, though. I never have done, and I I hope to... I I think there are enough sufficient ways of training a dog out there effectively without using them for the purposes uh, that I've ever needed to train my dog to. Um, But in terms of the the ethical dilemma, I think that it's a really, really, really complex uh, and, and, and emotive subject. And so... As far as I'm concerned, it's a moot point until the technology's there anyway. How how do we determine what right we have to judge someone else's training? Absolutely. So you what you just said was I would never use a shock collar. I wouldn't mm-hmm. either. I have better tools at my disposal. Uh, my yeah. objection and to a shock that, collar is not that it's mean, it's just I have better that, ways. Things that I am better at. Right. You know, there are things that I am better at. I don't, but if you I don't find have a, a trainer, using them, and so if you find a trainer like Michael Ellis, who mm-hmm. is brilliant at it, mm-hmm. is it right for us to say you should drop a tool you're effective with and spend a couple of years figuring out something else, or you're a bad person? Absolutely. And also, I think that there's the other dilemma, which I, which I which is quite um, poignant for me because I do do quite a lot of work in rescue which is that when we suggest that we're not allowed to use anything that the dog finds aversive at all um, and then we say we've done everything we can and now we're going to put this dog to sleep we haven't done everything we can Mm, that's an interesting one and so if, if, if we're happy to say I, I've got enough control and power and I'm, I am the right person to choose that this dog dies and yet we're not willing to use something that the dog doesn't 
doesn't enjoy. Do you come across that situation very often, Joe? Yes. Where you think that you could get a result if you then went, stepped it up to positive punishment? Um. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't simplify it quite down to those terms. Um. But I. I what I would say is that there is so much propaganda and there's so much judgment. Um. And we've become certainly in this country a nation so frightened of fear and stress in dogs mm. um that people are scared um and, and, and practitioners are are scared to use anything that would be deemed in making that dog feel because, stressed and because, yet we put dogs to sleep for behavioral reasons because, that have never um where we've not gone up that scale at mm. all um uh, and, and i feel like that's a bit contradictory yeah because i was saying to eric before you were on the call that in my experience as a dog trainer, I've never actually got to the point where I felt like I can't get a result unless I use pain to motivate dogs. But I'm sure that you work with cases that are more serious than I do. So have yeah. you came? Have you been in that situation? Um. Again, I think that you're 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 suggesting that um, things that are uncomfortable have to be painful, and and I don't think they do. And so, but, so to, I'm not. I'm not saying to, to I'm, put a point on I know, that. My my Gronendale bitch hates the rain, and yet she has mm -hmm. to go out and pee. So, mm -hmm. sorry, it's raining. It's an aversive. I'll make it as easy for yeah. you as I can. But mm -hmm. into every life, a little rain must fall. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm. I'm making a distinction here between um, an an aversive and uh, a using pain. Because I do think that there is a distinction to be made there. There's a big difference between a timeout and and using something that is actually painful. Have you ever put an electric shock collar on your neck? Me, no. Yeah. Okay. So I would suggest that you do that if if that's what we're talking about. If we're talking about shock collars, um, and I'm not for I'm not pro shock collar. So this is going to sound pro shock collar, but I'm not. But just in the sense of what you're saying, because you would would you deem a shock collar as using pain? Uh, yes, I would, but maybe. I, but you're right. Maybe I'm hypocritical in that I haven't actually tried uh, that. Yeah, because I think that what you'll find is that on the lower setting, you won't feel it. There is no mm -hmm. pain. And 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 that comes a point as well. But, because, but Joe, um, and that comes a point as well because we don't understand what the dog. We don't. We don't know how painful something is for our dogs to mm. be. The same way that I don't know if I pinch you, I don't know how how painful you find. And there. and let me share um, a and, story. And, so, and when you when does some, when does uncomfortable turn into pain? Let, okay. it's a really difficult let me share a story we, from karen pryor because I, I think this flows in um she was working with an owner who decided that when her dog was not giving her the response she wanted she would just turn her back for a second and the problem she was mm -hmm. having was that she couldn't keep the dog engaged in training and karen watched her do one repetition with this dog and when she turned her back that dog shut down the disconnection of social contact for that dog was the worst possible aversive. That dog probably would have preferred a shock. Yeah. So how do you uh, know what's aversive to a dog? You only do in hindsight. It's the same as, exactly. the same as reinforcement. Exactly. And you to only change, know how aversive it is. To change the topic a little bit. To change the topic a little bit and go back to what you were saying, Eric, about not writing anymore. I think that that's what's, it, that really annoys me about our community is I really hate going on these dog training groups and seeing people criticizing content creators because what happens is you get people like you that have so much knowledge to share they just 
can't be bothered to do it anymore you don't want to put up with that the stress of that and it's the same thing with you joe you know i've seen your posts where people have cancelled workshops and stuff because of things that they've said about you and it's just absolutely crazy you know that that we've got this community that wants to that's so critical of content creators and we really need them (laughs) Well, yeah, and I think it, it's um, I think it's fear based often. I think people, I think so. You you do get some knobs, but you also get people who are who are really scared of information that's going to contradict what they're doing. Well, and from my perspective, it's kind of a two edged sword because social media has gotten to this place where um, there are probably a lot of people. In fact, I know there are people out there who are still reading my stuff and downloading my podcasts um, from six and seven years ago. Um, I'm gonna. Well, thank you. I will. I'll be one of those. But we, the discourse on social media has gotten to a point where the people who are consuming that content and enjoying it are afraid to even speak up and say, hey, I really like that article because somebody's going to go clobber them. Right? Yeah, absolutely. So as a, as a content creator, not only am I getting shit from people who think they know better than I do, uh, and maybe do in some cases, but they're doing it in this sort of sanctimonious way. But I also don't get the positive feedback from the people who are reading my stuff and saying, I really appreciate that article. It really changed my thinking on something because they mm. don't feel free enough in the forum to just even say that. I get a lot of private messages, Eric. For sh- About um, me? That's know, great. I know. It's a- Sorry? About me? That's great. No. <laughs> <laughs> forward them, forward them. <laughs> no, I was just going to say, like, you get, it's definitely a minority of people that consume the content, right? You know, if you're getting a couple of hundred or even thousands of listens, you might get one message, right? But so I do definitely get messages from people occasionally that are really thankful. And I think it's those messages of those people that reach out for you, out to you and tell you how much your content has affected them that really motivates you to keep going. Well, certainly it does for me. Yeah. And so for me, for me, when it comes to content creation, the thing that motivates me is just bloody training my dogs. Do you know what I mean? Like, like I, I've got, <laughs> I've, I've got my hashtag, which is hashtag shut up and train. And I just think that essentially, what, hopefully, the information that we're gathering and discussing is is applicable. Otherwise, I don't see. Otherwise, it's just philosophy. And and there's nothing wrong with philosophy. Um, but for me, it's not about that. It's about practical application and it's about helping as many dogs as possible. And I think that when we have an argument, my answer or when people criticize something, my answer is, well, let me see with your dog. Let me see you with your, with your, have you done this? Because actually it's got to come from a place of practice as far as I'm concerned. And, 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 and I think there needs to be more, more people going out there and trying it and training and less people chatting about training. The amount of people that I meet that don't even bloody train their dogs and are happy to get on this social media and, sh- and shout about other people's techniques. Yeah, that's a really good point. Excellent. Well, a- a- Eric hasn't chipped in, so I think that's probably a good point to end. <laughs> is he gone? No, I'm right Eric, here. Just, still, you know, relax. Good heavens. <laughs> My phone rang and I had to tell somebody who was going to call him back. Just calm down. <laughs> that's My right. God. I'm run anyway. So... Let's wrap oh, up no, there. no, no. It's... You don't have to eat or anything, do you? You don't have a life. How dare you? How dare you? Oh, it's quite late here in the UK now. It's 8.20. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I haven't had dinner, actually, Eric. I, I couldn't, so I've been chatting to you. Couldn't give a crap, Nick. <laughs> my, dogs, my dogs have finally settled down. <laughs> yeah. After their, their loopiness. Well, now they want to go. Uh, he's making dinner. I cannot argue with that. Well, there you go. 
Um, God's <laughs> sakes. We, we should make this like a monthly thing. Oh, Eric, please. <laughs> that would be band. amazing. Well, Joe, it's really nice to have you. First time I've actually spoken to you on Skype and, and done a podcast with you. So that was really cool. And yeah, we're That's definitely. Right. Sorry if I made it really, really disruptive. No, no. And <laughs> it was already that if, way. If I can way, suggest, Nick, do a whole hour just with Joe. It's a pleasure to meet you, Joe. Nice pleasure to meet you, too. And I hope we talk again. Excellent. All right. Have a good evening, guys. Thanks. Bye bye bye. All right. See you then.